We're going to continue in our study in Mark this morning with Mark 12. Mark 12, today will be in verses 28 to 34. And today in our study, we're going to finish the section that we've been working our way through for a a couple different weeks now of different individuals and groups coming to Jesus and asking him what they thought were difficult, if not impossible questions, trying to trap him, trying to trip him up. They had questioned Jesus' authority, his loyalty, his doctrine, his teaching. And as you may remember, we've talked about the fact that without knowing it, they were actually fulfilling prophecy. Because during that Passover week, the tradition going all the way back to Moses, what God had told Moses for the children of Israel to do was to take a lamb into their home and to examine that lamb carefully to make sure it didn't have any blemish, didn't have any spot. And that's what they're doing because he is the ultimate Passover lamb and as they ask him their questions and try to accuse him and try to trap him and fail, they're seeing that this lamb is without blemish and without spot. In our passage today, we're going to see an individual, a scribe, who had a more friendly conversation with Jesus. And in that conversation, he asked Which of God's commandments is most important? That's the context. This is that passage. You may be familiar with it. I'm going to read it for us, and I'd invite you to stand, please. Hopefully you found your place. This is Mark chapter 12. I'm going to begin in verse 28. You follow along, please. Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, Which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth. For there is one God, and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, And with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. So when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared question him. Let's pray together, please. Our Lord and God, We come now to your word, desiring for you to feed us. Lord, we know that this is the word of God, and we are thankful to have it available to us to read and to study together. But Lord, please do not let this be a mental activity, an intellectual exercise today. Lord, I'm coming, and I trust these brothers and sisters are coming to hear from you. That you would show us more of you. 
Lord, we would see Jesus. We would see you in your word today. And we know as well that your word is a mirror that will show us ourselves. And we ask, Father, that you would show us ourselves today. That may be ugly. There may be stuff in our teeth that we need to see and get rid of. But Lord, we're asking that you would reveal our sin by your grace. Because Father, we know that where sin abounds, grace abounds more. Your forgiveness, your salvation is great. So please remind us of that today. Encourage us where we need it and convict us where we need it. Accomplish what you want your word to do in our hearts. Make the soil of our hearts receptive today. Give us ears to hear. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Almost 25 years ago, January 1999, as several of you know, my wife was in a car accident, a serious car accident. And she broke a number of bones and it required surgeries. But the accident happened on Tuesday morning and the surgeons had to wait for the swelling to go down enough for them to operate. So I think it was Friday night that she had her first major surgery on her ankles. And from Tuesday to Friday, first the emergency room and then a room, and I had stayed with her in the hospital. And neither of us obviously got a lot of sleep. And we got to Friday, and the surgeon, it was an evening surgery for some reason, and, it, and the surgeon came and talked to me before the surgery. And he said, the best thing you could do right now, what do you think he said? The best thing you could do right now, talking to me, what do you think he told me? Pray. That's a great answer. That's not what he told me. What did you say, Phil? Get some sleep. That is exactly what he said. The best thing you could do right now is go take a nap. Because I had barely slept for three nights by that point. And he said, there is nothing you can do right now. This surgery is going to take at least two hours. Go sleep. So I went back to her room with that little pull-out chair bed. You guys know what I'm talking about. And I went sound asleep. And good to his word, he came back to the room and woke me up, and I was bleary and trying to hear what he was saying because I was so far gone. But the best thing that I could do in that moment, in his opinion, doctor's opinion, doctor's orders, right, was go take a nap. Here's my question I would like for you to consider this morning. What is the best thing you can do for God right now? Don't answer that out loud. What is the best thing you can do for God right now? Could it be read your Bible? Could it be pray? What about witness? Share the gospel with someone. Could it be to give? Could it be to serve? All of those are good things. But I believe, after studying this passage this week, the answer to that question, what is the best thing you can do for God right now, brings us to our key word for this morning, and the key word is love. And for those of you who know a little bit about the different Greek words in our New Testament for love, this is agape. This is God's love for us. This is a choice. Willing choosing to love. 
sacrificing oneself for another, that kind of love that we're talking about this morning. I'm going to put four letters up on the screen. You know what that stands for? Anybody? Love God, love others. One of the sister churches in the area has adopted that as their vision, their purpose statement. Love God, love others. And that is the main point. So I'm trying to make this as simple as I can this morning. We're going to flesh it out. But first point, love God. That's in verse 30. Second point, love others. That's verse 31. If you don't remember any other word I say, you better remember love. And if you can remember four words, if you're more advanced, remember love God, love others. But what does that mean? We're going to go back through the passage, a verse at a time, going back to verse 28 and beginning there. Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning, or your translation might say arguing, or disputing, debating together, who? That would have been the Sadducees and Jesus. Perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? Now, who's a scribe? A teacher of the law. That's who came to Jesus. Now, as I studied this this week, one of my commentaries told me that the early scribe functions as secretaries to the king, David and Solomon. And then by the time of Hezekiah, they were transcribing. And that's what we think of as scribes. They're, they're copying meticulously the word of God, for which we are grateful. We are indebted to them. And over time, they became known for their scholarship and their interpretation of the law, which are good things. But by the time of Jesus, their interpretation of the law, what the scribes said, was even more important than what the written word of God said. That oral tradition of the Pharisees that we've talked about in other weeks. So there's, there's good and bad with this group. But this one scribe came, and he doesn't seem to be flattering Jesus the way the Herodians and Pharisees did two studies ago. But what he had seen, what he had heard, was that Jesus had answered the Sadducees well. Remember last week the, the silly question they brought to Jesus about the seven brothers who were all married to that one woman following the leveret marriage process? And he heard Jesus answer. Jesus talked about there is a resurrection and life in eternity is not going to be the same. Won't be married and given in marriage the way we are here. And he thought that Jesus' answer was good. And that suggests to us, perhaps, that this scribe was a Pharisee. Many of the scribes were. And for him to be rooting for Jesus the way he answered the question of the Sadducees, quite possible that this man was a Pharisee. His question is which, or more literally, what kind of commandment is the first? Or your translation might say the most important commandment. What's the most important commandment? Think of that question yourself for a minute. What, what commandment would be the, maybe you know the Ten Commandments or you know some of the Ten Commandments. And you're thinking in your mind, okay, don't steal, honor your father and mother, don't, don't make idols. Which one is the most important? And you might be weighing that in your mind. It's possible that that's what he had in mind. He, as a scribe and others, the rabbis, had determined that there were 613 commandments in the law, the books of Moses, those first five books. 613. 248 of those were affirmative. They were saying, do this. And 365, one for every day of the year. Don't do that. And that's what they had, totaling 613. And perhaps more than asking for one of those 613, 
they had started categorizing them. And they said, well, this is a heavier commandment. This is more important for us to keep. This is a lighter commandment. Yeah, it's important, but it's not as important as these over here. So they had divided them into categories, and these are the weighty ones, and these are the light ones. If you want to illustrate that, Jesus had talked about, if you go over to Matthew 23, I believe, you'll read that some of these scribes and Pharisees had gotten down to dividing up their seeds in order to tithe them, but they weren't paying attention to the more important things of the law. And Jesus even used the term, the weightier deeds of the law. It's not that you should leave those undone, but you need to pay attention to what God wants. That's what we're focused on here. What is Jesus going to say is the most important? The problem is that this group said, these are the heavy ones, and these are the light ones, and the other ones said, no, it's these. Is it that we have to keep the dietary law or the Sabbath day? Remember, that was a big deal to them. Or is it circumcision? Which, which of the commandments of the weighty and the light, which matters the most? They couldn't come to an agreement. So the scribes would have been bantering about this question. They would have been arguing about it on a regular basis, and he brings this one to Jesus because they couldn't agree which of the commandments were heavy, which ones were light. And Jesus answered him, I'm in verse 29, the first of all the commandments is this. So here's Jesus' answer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Is that a commandment? No, but he's quoting something that was very familiar to them. This is over in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. That's what Jesus is quoting. This is a side note. I'm not sure it has any real importance, but I thought it was cool because remember last week we were talking about the Sadducees, and they believed in only the first five books, only the books of Moses. And it's possible, because Mark doesn't tell us that the Sadducees had left, it's possible they're still there, and he's still using books of Moses, books of Moses. He has Deuteronomy and Numbers that he's going to quote here. This is Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Verbatim, pretty much. And now we get to the command, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And in Mark, it adds, with your mind. Back to verse 30 in Mark, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And he says, this is the first commandment. So this hero Israel, as soon as he said that, they would have recognized it because this is called the Shema. And any devout Jew of that day would have quoted this morning and evening. And that this, these two verses, six, four, and five from Deuteronomy, that's really just the first part of it because there was a section of it from Numbers. There was a section of it from a different passage in Deuteronomy. They recited the whole thing morning and evening. So they knew this well. And when this scribe comes and says, which is the greatest, the most important, the first commandment? Which one is the most important to keep? He starts off like this. And probably, in this case, the Sadducees, Pharisees, anybody else standing around would have probably been nodding. Yeah, this is familiar. Yeah, this, this is going to be a good answer. I like this. And he says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. What does that mean? That means Yahweh. That's the covenant name for God. Yahweh is is the one and only God. That's what that first statement is. And then he gets into the command. The command is to love the Lord. Love the Lord your God. That's the command. If, if you mark in your Bible, underline that. That's the first part of his answer. That's the command part. Love the Lord. This is voluntary. This is with my will. I am choosing. I am committing myself to love God. Someone said it's personal, it's comprehensive, and it's wholehearted. It's with all my heart. More about that in a minute. 
So it's, it's volitional. It's choosing. I am going to love the Lord. That is what I'm supposed to follow. We can say it this way. What God really wants from us is love. That we would love him. I don't know whether you realize it, but we can obey God without loving God. You say, are you sure? Yes, I'm sure. Going back several chapters in our study in Mark, Jesus said, quoting Isaiah, back in Mark 7, verse 6, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. You can go through the motions. You can obey without loving God. But if we love him, we will obey him. John 14, 15 says, If you love me, keep my commandments. What I'm here to tell you this morning is that what God wants first and foremost from every person in this room, anyone joining us online this morning, what God wants most is love. For us to love him back. What is the best thing you can possibly do for God right now is to love him. Love God. Now again, if you mark in your Bible, you might want to put a circle or a box around the word all. Do you see how many times it shows It shows up there? The repetition of this word all tells us how comprehensive this is. All of yourself. This is how we're supposed to love, with everything we have. I found this quote from Kent Hughes this week. It does not take much of a man to be a believer, but it takes all of him there is. It's not about who you are, how great you are, but whatever God has created you to be, the talents he's given you, the intellect he's given you, give him all of it. Love him with all of it. Because these words, heart, soul, mind, and strength, yes, it helps us to understand. I'm going to tell you what they mean, but it's not so much about this part of you needs to love God, this part of you. No, all of you, every part of you needs to love God. With the heart, that's probably easy for us. That's our emotions. How we feel about God. That you like him as your heavenly father. You love him. You adore him. You worship him. The soul would be the spirit, the self-conscious part of you that you're aware of. What makes you you, the internal part of you, the part that's going to live forever, that you're... With the, the spirit, you're going to love him. With the mind, we understand that. With the brain power that God has given, the intellectual part of this, that we're going to love him with that. I'm going to use the, the brain he gave me to, to read, to study his word, to share it with others, to apply it to my life. So that includes our thought life. And then our strength, our powers, perhaps referring to the will. Every part of us, Heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's, it's a complete package. That's the kind of love that's being called for here. Not half-hearted. Not, I don't, I don't feel a lot of love for God today. I think I'm just going to take this day off. In fact, I think I'm going to take a little vacation. Rather, we are supposed to take every part of us and all of every part of us and worship God and love him with every part of us. Now, I, I need to add, 
these are not things that I do so that God will love me. I'm not earning my salvation. I'm not earning God's love. He cannot and will not love me any more or any less. He's an eternal God. And when he loves us, it is a complete, unending love. We are loved with everlasting love, yes? But I do these things. I love him in these ways because I'm loved by him. Isn't that what 1 John 4.10 tells us? We love because he first loved us. We're returning that love back to him. We're loving him, and we're see, we'll see in a minute, we're loving others because he loved. God loved, same verb, the world so much that he gave his son so that we can have eternal life, so that we don't have to perish. We don't have to be eternally separated from him. Instead, we can have everlasting life, have eternal fellowship with him because he loved, because he showed his love. This type of love is action. And the action isn't to make him love me more or because I think he's mad at me and I, I want to somehow make it up to him. No, it's that I recognize the amazing, unfathomable love that he has shown to me in the gift of his son, Jesus Christ, who has provided me salvation. And for that, I love him. I express that back to him. I reflect it back to him. But there's more. The scribe asked, which command? Singular. Which command is the greatest? Singular. And what Jesus explained to him and to us is that there are actually two that go together. You can't do one without the other. Verse 31. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now, this quotation is not from Deuteronomy. It's from Leviticus. Leviticus 19.18 says, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And I'm not going to spend time in that passage in Leviticus, but any of you who want to dig into this deeper, look in the surrounding verses. Look at the context of Leviticus 19, and you're going to find probably a dozen or so activities that explain what it looks like. How do I love my neighbor as I love myself? Some of it overlaps with what we read earlier in our scripture reading in 1 Corinthians 13. You say, is this idea in other parts of the New Testament? Yes, it is. It's not just the Old Testament Leviticus, not even just Jesus quoting it here. But Galatians 5.14, Paul says, for all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You can read similar ideas in Romans 13 and in James 2. Very similar statements that the summation of the law is to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, it's very popular in our Western society, in our world today, to take this principle that God is giving, that we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourself, and to focus on the second part of it. That the reason I'm not loving people is that I don't love myself enough. And guys, that's false. That's a lie. If you can find one, you let me know after the service, but I'm not aware of any place in the Bible where we're commanded to love ourselves. You're not going to find it. Instead, the Bible assumes that we love ourselves. And we do. 
when our kids were little, we had a devotional book, just a board book. I don't know what happened to it. I don't think we still have it. But there was one part that was trying to teach to love others and to prefer others. And that, I wish I could show it to you because I can still see it in my mind. There's, there's a cake platter. I think it had a dome on it, like a glass covering. And it's showing a little kid looking at it. And it says, let someone else have the biggest piece of cake. That's love, folks. Now, I, I paraphrased it a little bit for my children. In our house, I taught them to let daddy have the biggest piece of cake. <laughs> Which y'all laugh at because you can relate to it, but what is that really saying? That's saying, I love myself, isn't it? That's the truth. I love myself and you love yourself. Jesus did not command us to love ourselves or to learn how to love ourselves better. He assumed that we love ourselves. How do I know that you love yourself? Don't raise your hand, but how many of you are hot in the room right now? How many of you are cold? How many of you are tired? How many of you, no, I said don't raise your hand. How many of you are hungry? How many of you are happy today? How many of you are sad? Why do you know that about yourself? Because you're thinking about yourself. It is natural, it is the most natural thing we can possibly do is to think about how does what I feel right now fit into the world around me? What does the atmosphere I'm in, what do the feelings that I have, how do they affect me and how can I make it better for me? That's just what we think about, guys and girls. That's how we think. That's what we do. Are there any of you who had to teach your toddler to say, mine? Any of you had to have to teach that? Okay. Another question for you parents. This is an informal survey. Did any of you, did your child learn yours before they learned mine. Anybody? I see no hands. I, I don't expect that that has happened. Are there any other verses that assume, that, that say that God assumes we love ourselves? I'm going to show you one other one. There, there are probably some others we could look at, but Ephesians 5, 28 and 29, we have Paul writing about marriage. Here's what the husband should do. Here what the, here's what the wives should do. So I'm going to read two of these verses. So husbands ought also to love their own wives, catch this, as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one, you see this? No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. We want our favorite snack, we want our favorite beverage, our favorite chair, our favorite TV show or whatever, book, newspaper, whatever. This is my happy place. This is where I want to be. There's not necessarily anything wrong with that, but I, I'm pointing it out to show that we care very much about ourselves. We want to nourish and cherish ourselves the way this passage says. And the Bible assumes that to be true. But it doesn't encourage us to do that. What I read in the Bible, what we've seen Jesus say to his disciples multiple times already is, if anyone wants to follow me, what does it say? Let him deny himself. Let him deny himself, not promote himself, not make himself as comfortable as possible, deny himself and take up his cry, cross daily and follow me. That's what I read in the Bible, not you have to learn how to care for yourself and love yourself more and more and more. That, that's what the world around us says today. But that's not what the Bible says. I think it's a fair question if we're going to discuss this, love my neighbor as myself, and you can read the parallel in Luke, who is my neighbor? 
Remember that question? Anybody who's nearby. It's a very generic and wide-ranging term. And some people think it is the parallel in Luke, and some people think it's another occasion in which Jesus said the same thing. Either way, what we have following that is the parable of the Good Samaritan to show who is my neighbor and how do I show love. That's in Luke chapter 10 if you want to look it up later. Jesus makes an amazing statement here. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the first part of his statement, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, all of it, that parallels the first four commandments that are related to God. And then the second part of what he says, love your neighbor as yourself, that parallels the last six. Don't steal, don't lie, don't commit adultery. So this has to do with our love for God and our love for others. You can't separate the two. If I love God, I will love others. I can't love others apart from loving God. Not in this way. How do we know this is even related? What, what's the way in which these things happen? The fact is, one word we put it this way, if we love God, we will experience his love. We will experience his love within us, and then we will express that love outside us, without, toward others. Again, where does it come from? Because he loved us, we love. And we love others as we love him. The relationship here that I'm getting at is that others are those made in his image. God made man in his image. Male and female, he created them. That's going back to Genesis. And because you are created in God's image, if I'm going to love God, I'm going to love you. You are intended to be a reflector of him. And I should be a reflector of his love toward you. Only Mark gives us the scribe's response to Jesus. And that's in verse 32. So the scribe said to him, well said, teacher. There's a little bit of humor in that to me because he's talking to the God of the, the universe and saying, good answer, good job, glad you got that. The scribe said to him, well said, teacher. You have spoken the truth, for there is one God and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself, here's what he says about it, is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifice. All of the burnt offerings and sacrifices, that doesn't mean as much to us as it would have been to them. A burnt offering, the entire thing is put on the altar until it burns up. No one gets any of it except God. Sacrifices were partly consumed by the fire and partly eaten by worshipers. So when you put these two things together, they're summarizing the entire sacrificial system. What is he saying? To love God and to love others is more than the entire sacrificial law. That's what this scribe is saying. He's agreeing with Jesus, or thinking that Jesus is agreeing with him, whichever. He's saying more than any sacrifice, and we could go to the Old Testament and prove that as well. I won't take time, but Micah, what does the Lord require except to, to love him? And there's no sacrifice that I can make that would please him more. First Samuel, to obey is better than sacrifice. 
So we could substitute in here, obeying here means love. To love is better, greater than any sacrifice that I could make. Verse 34, now when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, so the scribe approves of Jesus' answer, and Jesus approves of the scribe's answer. Jesus saw that he had answered wisely. He said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared question him. So he answers wisely. He answers with intelligence. He answers with understanding. What did he understand? That true obedience comes from the heart. What did we teach our kids? Obey all the way, right away. How? With a happy heart. This type of obedience has to come from the heart. That I desire, I choose from my innermost being to love God, to love others. Now what does he tell him? You are not far from the kingdom of God. What I hear in that is, you're on the right track. You're doing well, but you're not there yet. When he says, not far from the kingdom, it means that he was not yet in the kingdom. You agree? Does that make sense? He's not in the kingdom. To use our modern terminology, it means you're not saved yet. You're not a believer. Somebody said this was a compliment, but it was also a warning. How is it a warning? This scribe knew the truth, but he wasn't a believer. Why not? Because he had a head knowledge. He had the right answer. That is not the same as a heart relationship. He couldn't love God completely or love his neighbor as himself, at least not on his own. And neither can I, and neither can you. Because his question was, what is the greatest, the most important commandment? And God, Jesus gave him two answers, a two-part answer. And I suppose this guy could have come back like the rich young ruler did. All these I have kept from my youth up. I've done all this. I've got it. In this case, he didn't. I don't know what his heart was. It doesn't tell us. But here's the fact of the matter, guys. I can't do this on my own. That's what he's showing us. That's what he's showing this scribe. You can't do it. If, if we could, Jesus wouldn't have had to come and die. We can't keep, even when you take 600 laws, even if it had been 10, if you take it down to these two, I still can't do it. Adam and Eve had one. They couldn't do it. They chose to disobey God's law. That, that's where we are in our innermost being. We choose sin. Danny Aiken put it this way. Obeying rules and regulations will never get me into the kingdom because I can never measure up to God's perfect standard. No, I need a new me. I need a new heart. I need to draw near to Jesus. One draws near and enters the kingdom not by religion, but by relationship with Jesus. And our relationship with Jesus results in loving God supremely and loving others sacrificially. Again, I don't do it to be saved, but because I am saved, this is what I long to do. I'm not going to be able to do it perfectly, I just said that. But it's what I desire to do in my heart.
It is possible to know all the right answers like this man. You can grow up in the church and still be lost. You can read your Bible every day and pray and be very religious and still be lost. You can do good deeds. And yet someday he, he may say to you, if you don't have a relationship with him, depart from me, I never knew you. It's possible to fool everyone except God. And as this man points out, it is possible to be an inch from the kingdom and never enter in. And that is one of the burdens that came in my heart as I studied this this week. This isn't aimed at any one person because I didn't know who was going to be here this morning. But child or adult, don't play games. Don't pretend. Don't think, I'm good. I'm close. My parents are believers. I go to church. That's not going to cut it. Believing in Jesus, becoming a child of God through him, that is entering the kingdom. The very last statement there says that after that, no one dared question him. He had successfully answered all his critics. He's going to have some questions for them that we'll pick up with next time. The question I asked you at the beginning, what is the best thing you can do for God right now? The answer is love. To love God with everything you have and to love others as you love yourself. Now, if you know him, you will love him. There may be somebody here in this room, child or adult, there may be somebody online that you don't know him. But knowing him is eternal life. That's what, for, what John 17, 3 says. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I'm not going to enter heaven someday because I did a good job or I was a preacher or I read my Bible. I'm going only because I have a relationship with God through Jesus. I know him. I know him as my savior. And you can too. To put your trust in him alone for salvation, not him and going to church, him and being baptized, him and giving money, him and being a nice person, it's that I can't do this on my own, and I recognize that. And at my very best, I may come inches away, but I can't make it. So I'm, I'm turning to him. I'm putting my faith in Jesus alone for salvation. And all that looks like is, God, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Would you save me? And all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Believers. How's your love life? No, I'm not talking about your marriage or dating. How's your love life? Can you honestly say that you love God with every part of you? Or are you more like the church at Ephesus in Revelation? Have you left your first love? Is there some area of your life that you would consider off limits to everyone else, including God? Or would you say that Every area is given over to God, but not completely. Perhaps you love God, but in an apathetic way. There's little emotion or passion in your love for him. 
Could it be that your love for Christ has grown cold? If either of these statements describes you, turn back to him today. There is opportunity to return to God as long as he's giving you breath in your lungs. As long as your heart is beating, you can come back to God regardless of what you've done or haven't done. There are fresh starts over and over and over because of the grace of God. He will, by his grace, enable you to learn how to love him completely. We'll never get there all the way, but to make strides, to, to go in the right direction. What about loving your neighbor as yourself? Are you primarily motivated by love or selfishness? Are you going through the motions, secretly wanting others to like you or to approve of you? Are you trying to put on a good front so others won't know what is really going on in your heart? Romans 12, 9 says, let love, same word, noun form, let love be without hypocrisy, without putting on a front, without pretending. Let love be real, let love be genuine. Busyness is not love. Service is not love. It has to be motivated by love. So with this, I'm going to close. We read in our scripture reading 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. I'm going to read you the first three verses. You can turn there if you want, but I'm going to read them to you. Though I, Paul writes, speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. It means no matter how eloquent I might be, doesn't matter if I don't have love. Next idea. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. I could be the best student of the word of God. I could have all the faith in the world. And Paul says, if I don't have love, it's nothing. It's worthless. It's meaningless. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. I can give everything away to other people, to the poor. If I don't do it out of love, it's worthless. I could be a martyr. I can't think of anything more extreme than that. He says, if I don't do it out of love for God, it's worthless. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? This is God's word. So he has spoken this morning. So I'm not going to ask, has God spoken to you? I'm going to ask whether you have heard what he has spoken. Is there some area in which the Holy Spirit has pointed out something in your life? Something you're doing, you need to continue doing that. And praise God for it something you're doing that you need to stop doing. You need to repent of sin and turn back to him. Something you're not doing that you need to start again, start over. I'm not the Holy Spirit. I don't know the needs of all the hearts represented here, but I know there are needs.
So I've prayed for you this week, and I'm about to close our service, this part of our service, by praying right now. But is there anyone who would say, the Lord has given me something very specific that I need to do or to become through his help as a result of looking at this passage this morning. If that describes you and you'd like me to pray for you, I'm not going to call you out or embarrass you or name you. But if that describes you and you'd like me to pray for you as I close, would you raise your hand and put it back down? Yes? 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 Last of all, is there anyone here you don't know whether you have a relationship with God? That's where all this begins. We love because he first loved us. He provided salvation in Jesus. So if you don't know whether you're saved or you're burdened about that, you're concerned for your soul, would you do the same thing? Again, I'm not going to call you out, but is there anyone you're concerned for your soul, you'd like me to pray for you? Anybody? Same thing. Raise your hand, put it back down. Our Father, you are so good. You are so kind. You are love. And we thank you for sending your son Jesus to live a perfect life, a life of love and service that he always did the will of his father. He came to do your will and he did it perfectly. And that is not something that we can do, but we are supposed to be like him because that's your will that we would become like Jesus. Father, I confess my own selfishness, my own self-focus. Times that I care much more about my own comfort than about your will, than about worshiping you, than about serving others around me. Father, we fail often. And yet we desire to please you, we desire to honor you. So by your grace and with your help, we ask that we could begin again today to love you and to love others, to live for you, to reflect and spread and share the love that you have demonstrated toward us. Lord, I pray for those who have said that you are showing them specifically what they need to do as an action in response to what we have studied together this morning. Lord, work in their hearts. Encourage them to obey. Encourage them to recruit others who will encourage them in that process to pray for them, to help them. Father, if there's someone online today or someone in this room who does not yet know you as Savior, may today be the day of salvation. Continue to work in our hearts. And though it's imperfect, we do love you. And thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.